Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Internet governance has become another battleground for China and the United States. Beijing claims it is tired of the Western-centric, multi-stakeholder model of internet governance that allows a collective dialogue with industry, academics, civil society, along with government representatives. They wish to return to the United Nations government-centered multilateral model. This is how China is using the standard-setting bodies in the United Nations, and specifically the International Telecommunications Union, to enable a model-centralized internet infrastructure. They're doing this by proposing a new network-based native products model that reflects China's policy agenda for a top-down approach that would give a leg up to protected local markets and ensure that the Communist Party ideals are embedded in how technology operates. Technology is not agnostic from policy. So what would the success of China's model mean for the future of the internet and how it's governed? And what does it mean for human rights? My guest today is Dominique Lazansky, the director and principal consultant of Last Press Label, a UK-based consultancy that specializes in global cybersecurity and internet policy issues. Dominique recently wrote an essay for Oxford Information Labs titled Standardizing the Splinternet, How China's Technical Standards Could Fragment from the Internet, which looks at the relationship between China's technological ambitions and the rise of what China's proponents are calling a decentralized internet marketplace. Dominique joined me from across the pond to talk about her new essay on this important topic. So Dominique, thank you for this great paper that you and Emily Taylor and Stacey Hoffman put together on the standardizing of the splitternet, how China's technical standards could fragment the internet. I know I learned a lot. This is an issue I've been following for quite a while, but you did a very good job of being succinct in the topic and you have a lot of good charts and graphs. So I highly recommend people take a look at it. Thank you. But the discussion is one that I know I've been watching for a while, and it's really about how the Chinese are learning to, I'm going to use the phrase game, they're learning to game the standards process to make sure that the weights kind of go in their favor. And so let's talk about the standards process just sure. in the beginning and you know how the internet is sort of a unique thing around, around because we don't actually run the internet on standards, they run on RFIs, and, and we, can, we can touch on that. So explain the importance to the standards process to us. Sure. Well, I mean, back in the day, you know, back before liberalization, the standards process was really important for governments in terms of, you know, spectrum and, and managing telephones and, and all of that stuff. And that's done in, and was done in the UN. And then the Internet came along around in the 70s and 80s, as you know, and through bottom-up, very spontaneous working together processes that were quite messy, the standards that developed on the internet that are used, but not formal, in addition to TCPIP, which we all know and love, basically developed very much as sort of, a, you know, you're using it and that happens. Over at the UN and over in some other standards organizations like 3GPP, which does standards for, for 5G as well as regional standards groups like Etsy and various other ones as well. There's a more formal process that comes together and primarily industry is driving standards that will be adopted and used. For example, 5G is probably the best example where industry governments and a variety of other stakeholders came together in 3GPP to define standards for 5G, which as we know, are very, very different. 
But because industry is really driving standards post-liberalization in the 80s, there has been a move away from standards being done by governments, right? So, you know, the government of the Czech Republic or Czechia, I guess now, will no longer need to go to the UN to do standards for their telephone networks. They have industry that participates in other places as the networks have been driven to mobile. However, this has left a gap in the UN processes, in particular at an institution called the International Telecommunications Union, or the ITU, for technical standards. Now, the ITU is still very important because of spectrum allocation. That's something that every government participates in every four years. And there is a big conference that the ITU just held at the end of last year for spectrum management. But when it comes to standards like you know, network standards or anything to do with telecommunication standards, industries primarily elsewhere. And there was a conscious choice, which is a very detailed story. But the basic thing that happened is the members of the ITU in the late 80s chose not to standardize the internet. And because of that, it's gone to the Internet Engineering Task Force, IETF. There's a lot of acronyms in this, as you know. Which has, <laughs> which has developed a bottom-up processing through the stewardship initially of Vintsurf and others in the Internet Society. And it's, again, very messy, but very, very multi-stakeholder. And I know you just had David Gross on talking about the IGF. Well, that process effectively is transposed into the Internet technical processes, and it's very fluid. So the gap that's been left at the UN has been increasingly being filled by China. We also recently had on Grace Co, Ambassador Grace Co, and Trish Paylor. Fantastic. You know, the importance of, of the standards and the working of spectrum. So it's, it's an area that I think that this audience is Excellent. getting more familiar with. But what's interesting about standards, as you point out in your paper, is that once a company or a government has chosen a standard, it tends to lock them into a specific path. Mm. Um, outdated and substandard quickly, which is why the internet runs on a request for information, which are considered best current practices because they're easier to update. Are we still, I mean, is that going to be a challenge? And I realize 5G wanting some level of standards is it's a little confusing for the average bear to understand when do you use a standard and when do you just say best practices? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And I think you're going to increasingly hear RFCs or requests for comments being said, oh, that's the standard for this and that's the standard for that. They're now being used interchangeably. But I guess the thing that's happening now is if you want to standardize something that's more like finite, like how the network communicates with a mobile phone to authenticate it, for example, things like that are something that doesn't change. The actual physical technology might change, but the process and the technical aspect of it doesn't change. Whereas where the internet is the, the growth of encryption and a number of other issues that you probably talked about, encrypted DNS and, and various things like that, has been typically put into use cases first and then brought to the IETF and became an RFC and then became more standardized. I think the language is something that's shifting quite a lot, Shane, actually now as well. I'm glad you mentioned it because this is a very confusing phrase, which then has become an acronym, which is Decentralized Internet Infrastructure, or DII, because it's mm. the, the antithesis of what it is. Mm. It's not decentralized, it's centralized. So let's talk about that. But 
I want to get to the technology later. The other thing I want to talk about is as this has come around, who holds the pen on writing this mm. really matters. And we're seeing more and more of the pen being held by entities of the Chinese government. Yeah, so that's a really great question because in the ITU process, in the in the technical process at the ITU, again, the UM process effectively, what happens is you can submit work items and there's a very formal process for doing that. And I would say an incredible number of work items has been submitted by one or more individuals from either Chinese companies or Chinese research institutions or actual Chinese ministries, Chinese government arms. In particular, as you just mentioned, DII, there's a really big push to standardize their version of blockchain, which I won't get into, but the the Chinese version that tends to be coming out of those new work items in the UN actually has a way to comply with the Chinese government laws, which are to be able to have the government access data, right? So effectively, it no longer becomes a blockchain, if you see what I mean. But still, there's like this increasing process to standardize blockchain because that's how they're going to use, propose to use identifiers for this supposed decentralized internet infrastructure that's different than TCP IP. Does it not become blockchain because it's it's a way that it can be augmented so the information isn't locked in? I'm not clear on that. Yeah, it is a blockchain like that. So it can be, you know, built as a chain, so to speak, but there is a way to access that information. It's not completely anonymized, if that makes sense. One point that you make, which I love is, you know, these ITU study groups are always fascinating to me. Everybody runs around and talks about them and their numbers. So in the in the case of 17, <laughs> five of the 12 working groups on cloud computing and big data infrastructure have editors from China Telecom or the China Telecom Research and Development Center. So you you yeah. start to see, I have talked about this in other locations where I say, you know, when I was working for VeriSign back in like 2006, 2007, I remember the engineers coming in in a bit of a panic. They had just returned from an internet engineering task force, an IETF meeting, and said the Chinese showed up. And I was like, isn't that new? Yeah. And they were like, not really. And I go, I don't understand. Is this a problem? They're like, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> the Chinese kind of hang back and wait for us to create the standards or the RFCs, and then they, they build to them. But now they're actually getting into like writing the standards, which is a totally new ballgame. Yep. So 15 years yep. later, we're starting to see more and more of this. And I love the example that you put in the paper about how, how you pronounce this right, Hivich Vision, the Chinese surveillance company. The company is on the US sanction list, and it became the editor of their surveillance standards at the ITU. Yeah. The company markets their surveillance equipment in 2019. They noted that they were really good at identifying Uyghur ethnicity. <laughs> is the, yeah. the entity that is holding the pin at the ITU, which is yeah. basically a long arm of the, the Chinese government. So it makes it really fascinating. So let's talk about the, amazing. Network, yeah, the network layers, because this is where the real sure. factor comes in. You know, chills down my spine is because the internet has been amazing because of its ubiquitous nature and it's been open and you've always been able to improve upon it. And now it looks like we're looking to invert that process with some of the work that the Chinese and the IT are doing. So how are they how are they accomplishing this? Well it's really interesting. So in the paper, like I said, we have a really brief diagram of the OSI model, right? And then the TCP IP model and then the DII model. What the DII model does, and so you have seven layers of the OSI model, and then with TCP IP, you've got four layers, which just to remind you, application transport, 
internet and network access. What happens in the DII model is there's the third-party application, there's research management, there's blockchain, and then there's the physical component. And this sounds kind of like, oh, well, that could possibly work. But what's interesting is when you look at it more closely, first of all, there aren't a super lot of details. Like We've never seen this actually demonstrated. We don't know if there's a lab running a version of this in China. We've never actually seen those specific details. But the second thing that it brings up is, you know, the internet, as you said, is decentralized, right? It survived a massive cyber attack in 2017, where it was so resilient that though we noticed it, it was the dying attack, it came back up, right? It was, it was quite resilient because it is decentralized. Same thing for all of us working at home globally, right? 30% more traffic suddenly, not just working at home, but, you know, Netflix and all that as well. Again, resilient, able to route traffic quite quickly. With the DII model, it's a very point-to-point kind of, it's almost mimicking, I would say, telecom infrastructure, right? Very linear. And my argument has always been with this kind of approach is that it mimics the political system, right? So it's more of a top-down management process versus a decentralized process, right? It has a single point of entry. It has, you know, it has various nodes, but each node has to have a fixed identifier. And what happens, obviously, as you know, with the domain name system is you can have DCHP. So you have different devices connecting and then releasing the IP address, right? So again, if you think about it almost from a political point of view, right, from an ideology politically, it makes sense. It fits into that way with China. Our internet newbies here, you know, the internet runs on path of least resistance. So it's like you put the the quest from Washington to LA and you're like, good luck. And you don't care what path it takes Mm. there. And this is at a very specific route, which means you can also watch the traffic as it goes. Mm. As you mentioned in the very beginning, the the internet governance discussion that I had with David Gross and Dustin Loop a couple of weeks ago, that this may change our whole internet governance process where right now we have academics, we have civil society, we have industry at the table along with government, but they all have an equal share in the dialogue. Mm. And this sounds like we're putting governments back on top of the, the pyramid and everybody else, it trickles down from there. Am I reading that right? Absolutely. And there was a side comment made at a meeting in the last few months by a, a delegate from China. And this I heard third hand, I didn't attend the meeting, but basically they said, we're tired of the Western internet governance model. We want our own. (laughs) So, I mean, they're not even trying to hide the fact that through the technical processes that they're proposing, they're trying to change the actual governance. I mean, in reality, what I think, you know, long been sort of hyped as, oh, there's a splinternet, things are going to, you know, everything's going to go crazy. There's going to be millions of internets. I really think you're seeing an actual sort of bifurcation, right? You're seeing sort of West versus East again in terms of just through standards, right? I think a Cold War is not quite the right analogy. I think it's the sort of next level of tension. So you'll definitely see China trying to push this and get support from a number of countries in the group of 77, which includes a lot of developing countries in in Africa. And for sure, Russia is supporting it as well in in the ITU. Also noted in your paper, you talk about how the social elements of technology, including the identifying economic security, full security, cultural security, and social stability are things that the Chinese have pointed out is, you know, they they want more of a top-down approach, including the China's first national cybersecurity strategy marks 
they think of all of this as part of the cybersecurity program, which then yeah. um, leads to what what happens to human rights in this? Because human right. rights actually is a big discussion point for the internet governance structure. I think that's a really, really good point. I've been trying to listen closely to the language, right, in the last couple of weeks. So as you may or may not know, in the UK, the Huawei discussion is quite heated. And there was a decision just taken that they're going to ban Huawei equipment from the 5G network here in the UK. And so the ambassador from China in the UK has been has been saying quite a lot of heated things, you know, because I've been interested in the human rights. And so also on top of that, in the UK, UK is going to offer a path to citizenship for a number of Hong Kong, pretty much anybody in Hong Kong can come and live and work in the UK. And what I'm hearing more and more is China saying, this is a national matter. This is, you know, the Uyghurs, it's a national matter. Hong Kong, it's a national matter. This is not pertain to you. And so I'm the language they're using is basically just completely just not even addressing human rights. Like, I think what's going to happen is human rights is not even going to be on the table. So if you look at the Human Rights Council at the UN that just finished meeting for this particular term, there was not one bullet item about the Uyghurs, not one. There was Venezuela was on the map and Syria was on the map and all of that, but nothing from China. So politically, there's obviously something going on there where they're able to to keep themselves off of that agenda. But from a technical point of view, if they start saying, well, this is our infrastructure, this is what we're doing, and we're sharing it with our allies, they're going to say human rights is not something that particularly pertains to that. And that is really worrying. That sort of breaks up the multi-stakeholder model, don't you think? Yeah, no, again, quoting your great paper where it says technology is not agnostic from policy, regulation, or society. Yeah. It's explicitly or implicitly affected mm. by these factors. And then you you actually you know point out, we use the phrase mm. divide a little bit differently here than we do in the international perspectives. We're struggling with the COVID kids that yeah. don't have ability to get their homework done is kind of what I think Americans <laughs> are on when it comes to digital divide, but this has a whole yeah. <laughs> layer to it. So can you expound on that? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So basically, on a very, very basic level, you and I both have backgrounds in the mobile industry, right? And mobile is going to be the best way, effectively, that we're going to get like access. And if it starts to become onerous for mobile operators in countries where it's already challenging, whether it's through terrain or economic development or whatever it might be, Having to have, you know, basically China come in and place more restrictions on operators. Oh, you have to build the network this way. It has to be this equipment. It has to, you know, it's a single point of failure. There's no resilience. It's a point to point, you know, kind of process. All of that. It's going to cost an incredible amount of money, as we know. This has always been the issue, investment, which means you're going to have a heck of a lot more people that are not online already, still not online, right? The issue, it's kind of funny, the issue, you, you know, you hit on it. We're having the same discussion here in the UK. There's like, you know, oh, we can't, I can't get my child or my nephew to sit down and, and you know, have a Zoom call. Well, in a, a number of countries, you don't even have access except for a 2G phone for an entire like area. So making access affordable is the biggest problem. And obviously, there's other political aspects to this as well when it comes to China making investments through Belt and Road, for example. There was a discussion that I recently had where I understood that China almost, and they didn't do it, but they were going to mandate quite a number of internet technical telecom standards through the investment of Belt and Road. 
meaning they would have to, the standards that they had in building out Belt and Road through these certain countries for no cost or little cost, they would, you know, the countries would have had to adopt that as well. So that's maybe a more tangible example, but effectively that's, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, and you can bring it back to the 5G conversation where we're looking at the huge opportunity here, definite challenge with, you know, local and state governments and how we're, you know, structuring the, you know, the 5G equipment. But it also seems like that the people like the Chinese are taking the advantage of 5G and the next generation network to really restructure much more than just you mm. know, how we get, you know, quick, low latency equipment up and running. Yeah where they're going to start, you know, restructuring their networks so they can put in place all of these ways to stop and start communications and commerce. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, the 5G network is, you know, very high and very low latency, as you said, but also a lot of stuff is pushed to the edge, right? So there's a lot of cloud computing. There's a lot of services that are network slicing services. So again, everything's hopefully you've covered some of these issues, but everything's been pushed to the edge. Well, there's, there's a massive push from China and Chinese companies in the ITU to standardize really specific types of services, network slicing services, network security services, cloud security, things like that, that are so specific to certain things that it's clearly that they're hoping to have an array, sort of like a banquet of standards for 5G edge computing. This all leads to much more fascinating work. I know that the <laughs> ITU and the UN and even some of our events here in the just national events here in the United States are challenged with virtual because so much of the work gets done in the hallways and the backroom chatter. Absolutely. Especially yeah. You're trying to get to consensus and not going towards a vote. To those who are interested in this topic, sort of what should we be looking out for? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so China just launched, and I haven't seen an English publication of it yet, but basically they have a new set of standards, like a new standard policy. They just launched the standards 2035. So basically it takes the sort of goal of being really active in international standards, not just for technical and internet, but all global standards, and takes it to a new level. So they've reorganized themselves. They have President Xi is the head of the standards committee. I mean, he's probably the head of all the committees for everything, but he's definitely head of the standards committee. There's a really big push to have more leadership across standards. So again, it's the standard strategy 2035. So I think that's going to be coming up in the news quite a lot. The other thing that's going to be coming up, as you know, Shane, every four years, the ITU has different departments in its in its agency and its organization. And the big one for technical standards has a big meeting called the WTSA coming up in November, but it's potentially going to be moved pretty much 99% going to be moved until February. So you'll start to see a lot more discussion and people will be a lot more aware of the tensions between China and in particular also Huawei and a number of the countries that have had these really debates like we have had in the UK. And that's going to start to play up because there's a number, I know I mentioned, or you mentioned Hikvision, there's a number of companies that are on the US sanctions list that have been active in addition to Hikvision in the ITU. So you'll start to see how that's going to work itself out through this big meeting where there will be multilateral negotiation for future plans of what to do in the ITU for technical standards. So China's putting a, quite a lot of resource into that. 
those are two things, sort of newsworthy things that I think if I were kind of new to this, I'd start looking at that. And, and you'll hear much more about that in the next couple months. Fantastic. Well, Dominique, thank yep. you so much for this great paper that you and Emily and Stacy put together. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. And fantastic. You watching the work that you guys are doing. Thank you very much for being a guest on Explain to Shane. Thank you, Shane. <laughs>